0: Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we're working our way through this book. 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, This this last week, I've almost finished this uh, TV cabinet that I'm working on. I'm not going to show you a picture until it's completely finished, but I had the last coat of paint put on this week, and uh, I was very careful, you know, you sand and you clean off the stuff, and you get it ready, and you spray the paint, and got to do that two or three times, starting with the primer, and then the first coat, and so on, and, and uh, I was very careful, but apparently not quite careful enough, because the top of the thing, the part that shows more than anything else, came out kind of uneven, oh shoot, so I, I thought, well, I'll just spray some more paint on it. Now that's that's just the worst thing you could do. But somehow I thought, well, maybe that'll work. Okay. You know. You ever do that with a cake, Kathy? Just put another coat of frosting on it. You know? Yeah, that didn't work. So then I thought, you know, I'm gonna take some wood wax and I'm gonna buff this thing down. I don't really have a I don't have the right stuff to do that. So when I got done, it was shiny and bad. <laughs> Plus it's got wax on it now, so I had to take the wax off and then sand the thing down and put another whole coat of paint. Now it looks decent, you know. So it'll it'll be uh, it'll be presentable at least if my wife will cover it with curios on the top. But. There are some passages of scripture that need very careful study, explanation, and application. And we have come to one of them today. Can't do any slapstick work here today. Uh, I trust that never does happen. But, you know, it would, it would be easier in preaching to preach topics and just to plain avoid the first half of First Corinthians 11. Because honestly, one of the commentators I read said, This is as hard as ever to figure out, and nobody's quite figured it out yet. I'll paraphrase. But we need to take all of God's word seriously and study it diligently because God said it. Therefore, it does hold some significance for us. It is up to us to do the hard work and try to understand what God is saying to us. And so follow with me as I read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shaved. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shaved, let her be covered. For if a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from the man, even so man comes also through the woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does, that, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, it kind of goes along, and then it kind of takes a sharp turn, and it goes along, and it takes another sharp turn, and Some of the things later seem to go with or contradict the things earlier, and it's really a challenge. And so the place we need to start to understand this passage is just in the first verse of the next passage, in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in part I believe it. Now, in our Western way of thinking, we would always put the qualifying context up front in a passage. But here, the Apostle Paul starts into this topic and then right in the middle he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I'm not praising you. I'm essentially, I'm I'm, uh, rebuking you because when you come together, it's not good, it's bad. That's the worst possible scenario a church can have. When you come together, you don't go away enriched and strengthened and prepared to live for the Lord. You go away kind of beat up. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And so verses 2 through 16 are about the church gathered. This is not a broad instruction to everybody, everywhere, at all time. It's not, a, it's not a 24-7, 365 kind of command, as we would say today. There are commands like that. You know, a simple command like pray without ceasing. That's to every Christian all the time. This instruction has to do with coming to church and how we conduct ourselves when we gather together. And so it's important in understanding any passage of scripture that we say what is the context? What is the what is the big picture of what's being taught here? Every book of the Bible had a big picture and you know a point that was attempted to be put across by God through the human author. And within that there are subpoints and here in this section In this section, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about a series of things when the church gathers. And so that is the environment we're talking about. We're not just talking about men and women praying wherever they might be. We're talking about in the church. And then we go to verse uh, 2, and we understand the basis of right ministry when he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The word traditions here uh, could be translated teachings. It's translated that way in the NIV and it's also translated by the word ordinance in the King James Version. The literal meaning is something passed from one person to another. There are other words that talk about teaching. There are other words that talk about rules or ordinances. This word is talking about something that's passed from one person to another. So when it's called a When it's a tradition, when it's interpreted that way, he's saying there are some things that have been passed from one person to another. Look at verse 23 of this same chapter. Here's an example of what he means when he says, you're holding the traditions as I've given them to you. Verse 23 says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. That's the concept in this word. Now the reason that's important is because there are churches who believe that when Jesus Christ was here on earth he said a lot of things that were God's Word for us today which were never written down by the Apostles and later Perhaps they were written down and later they were understood by other leaders in the church. And so it becomes a co-equal authority basis. We have, we have the traditions and we have the Bible and we have other things. And from those so-called traditions, wrong practices wrong beliefs have developed the apostle paul is not saying there's a lot of stuff that i've said to you and because i'm an apostle everything is important no what he's saying is i've been speaking god's word to you i've been speaking jesus talked to me and i'm telling it to you boom there it is now this word is also used in this passage here and this really makes it clear therefore brethren stand fast and hold the traditions same word which you were taught whether by word or our epistle that's the fancy word for these books in the new testament it means a letter it's the greek word for letter and they were all uh, letters that were sent to somebody corinthians sent to the corinthian church the traditions were not just paul's way of living and conducting ministry they were the truth of god given to paul and to the other apostles and so Paul is laying the foundation of the instruction to come. He knew what he was about to say was going to be hard to receive. If you're having a hard time understanding it, I would submit to you that the Corinthians understood it perfectly, but we're going to have a hard time to accept it. And so he, he starts by saying, Now, I'm praising you that you follow God's word like I've been teaching it to you. That's good. Um. This reminds me of my theology professor who talked about answering questions, and he was out in a church, and somebody asked him a question, and he knew what he was going to say would not please them. And so the first thing he said was, now, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And they said, oh, yes, I do. Well, the Bible says this. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He says, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Yes, I know you do. That's good because I'm about to share with you some more of God's truth. And so the question that I ask you is that same question. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? (laughs) Because we're about to hear a couple of things in this passage that are going to challenge us. One of them is really clear. One of them is hard to understand. There is a foundational truth. This is the part that's really clear in verse 3. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the, head of woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. There are three authoritative relationships that are cited here in terms of headship and submission. And he uses this word head. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He's obviously not using the image of of the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, what he's saying is, he said, here is a man and there is a person over him. There is an authority over him and that authority is Christ. And then he says, the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. A couple of those statements are a little bit challenging for us, but we're going to unpack them all. There is a word used in Scripture often to refer to mankind, that is, all human beings, and it's the Greek word anthropos comes into our language and the word anthropology, the study of man. That is not the word used of man here. It is this word is the word for male. It's also translated husband at times. And so he's saying here, I want you to know that the head of every individual male person is Christ. Um, it is true that all men and women are generally subject to Christ. That is the truth of Scripture. But this passage is focusing in on, on three particular relationships, and you'll see why in a minute. This statement is perhaps the least controversial of the three. Nobody here would say, well, I don't like the fact that Christ is the head over all the men. Okay. Anybody here want to disagree with that statement, say, I don't like that, I don't think that's biblical, but when we move on, we get to some other part that's a little more challenging to us, but let's just stop there a minute and ask this question. The scripture says Christ is the head of every male Christian, and so the question is, men, are you living under the authority of Christ? Christ is the head, but are you living as though that is true? I I found this verse in in my Bible reading this week. Joshua did what the Lord said. Look at here. As the Lord commanded Joshua his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He left nothing undone. God told Moses what was supposed to happen. Moses passed it on to Joshua and Joshua did it all. That would be a wonderful epitaph to be on our gravestone, wouldn't it? This man did everything that the Lord commanded. That is the relationship that men have with Christ. He is the head, we are the follower. Now we go to the next authoritative relationship. Here's where we get into challenge, especially in our modern society the head of woman is man now there's an important qualifier and again we're trying to understand what this passage is teaching not what all of the scripture is teaching because what this passage is saying i believe is this the head of the wife is the husband it doesn't use the word mankind it doesn't use, and it doesn't use the word every so that it would could read like this but it doesn't Every woman is subject to every man in the body of Christ. It's not saying that. It's saying the head of woman is man. It doesn't even say the woman. And so he's trying to tell us something, and the words used are often translated husband and wife. And this is going to be important as we get down just a little bit farther. The first phrase said, the head of every man is Christ. The second phrase doesn't say, the head of every woman is every man. The scripture doesn't say that all women are subject to all men, but it does say, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, there's about two or three things in the scripture I don't like to preach, and this is one of them. It's not because I disagree with it. It's because it's awful tough for me to stand up here and say, ladies, submit to your husband. Okay? I know I'm a man. I know I'm on the top side of that command. I'm on the top side of that relationship. I know that humanly speaking, that looks like, well, of course you're going to preach that. Okay? I get that. But I'll just, I'll just tell it to you briefly this way. I have seen what happens when that relationship goes upside down. And when women take control, and when women don't follow their husband, I have seen what, that, what happens. And so I just want to stand here, and, and not only from the scripture, but from experience, say, ladies, you need to be following your husband. Now, there's different ways that different couples work out some of those things. It, it doesn't mean that every marriage needs to look exactly the same. I understand that. But somehow, ladies, just like the men have to honestly stand here and say, am I following Christ, you have to honestly stand here and say, am I following my husband's lead? Equally important is, as a husband, we need to say, are you attempting to lead your wife to walk in godliness? I mean, that's the key, that's the key issue of, of male leadership, you know, is, is becoming like Christ. It's not all about every single decision that's made in the home. And so God has set up this authority structure in comparing the relationship of God and Christ, which we'll talk about in a minute, to that of the husband and wife. One commentator said this, so it is in the relationship between man and woman. The man is not superior to the woman. Both are equally human, and in Christ there is spiritual oneness. However... To carry out the divine will for the family and the church, the man has been established as the head of the woman. Now, I would just say this. If you don't believe that, you can go to sleep now because the rest of this passage isn't going to mean anything to you. Okay, Because that's what this passage is about. This passage is about visibly demonstrating the reality of the authority structures God has put in place. And it's about doing that in the realm of the church. And and I understand that's politically incorrect. I understand it's hard for every married couple to live it out. And you know why? If you don't know this, you should check it out later. You should read Genesis chapter 3 and understand that because of sin coming into the world, God said to the woman, you're going to want to rule your husband, but he is going to rule over you. And I understand that, that that is a challenge. And I'm pretty sure if uh, most people's example that I know comes to bear, that that's something we work out throughout all of our life. Now, there is a third uh, a, a relationship that's mentioned here, which also it challenges us in our theological understanding. Look there at verse 3 again. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We look at that as, as good theologians and we say, well, wait a minute, isn't Jesus equal to God? Yes, he is, and he said it himself, I and my Father are one. As to their essential being, they are equally divine along with the Holy Spirit. However, in speaking of Christ, This scripture is speaking of the God-man in his earthly experience, and so Jesus also said this, my father is greater than I. Why would he say I and my father are one, and yet my father is greater than I? I think we come to understand when we come to this famous passage that he was following the Father's plan. He went a little further, and he fell on his face in the garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, saying, O oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The eternal second person of the Godhead, and I know that's a big theological mouthful, but I don't know any better way to say it. The eternal second person, God the Father, the the first person, God the Son, the second person, God the Holy Spirit, the third person, the eternal second person of the Godhead took on a human nature and as such, he followed the plan that God the Father had put in place. And what we understand here is that in his human nature, he looked forward and saw what was going to happen and said, oh, God, is there some other way this can happen? So he submitted to the will and plan of God the Father. And that is a model, of course, for all of us in in our submission. There is nothing intrinsically bad or weak or inferior about a woman. This is God's determination that man should lead the woman, that Christ should be subject to God, that men should be subject to Christ. And so from this foundational concept, we move to verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Um, You need to understand something. First of all, when I've said the activity in question is praying or prophesying, and what is the context? In the church when it is gathered. I believe that this is a limited exhortation. Okay? Okay. and I, I believe it's limited because it's essentially saying there is a condition under which a woman could pray or prophesy. But when we go just a couple chapters down the road, we read this. Let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Now, when we look at that, we could say, well, these two pieces of Scripture don't agree. Oh, no, they agree. This passage is over here is saying the women are not to get up and teach and to take the position of spiritual leadership. This passage over here though is saying there is a condition under which women could pray or prophesy. I think there's a difference between praying and prophesying and teaching. And I think the difference is this. Praying and prophesying were spontaneous activities. Now what do I mean by a spontaneous activity? Put yourself back in Corinth. How much of the Bible has been written down? Well, the whole Old Testament has. How much of the new? Not much. So they came together. And I can imagine the Apostle Paul getting ready for church on Sunday, going to the First Baptist Church of Corinth, doing his sermon preparation. I... I, I don't don't think he had notes. I think he was a brilliant man. He probably didn't need notes. But I think he thought about what he was going to say because when you look at the organization of the Scripture, you understand that he thought in very logical and organized terms. So he probably thought, okay, I've been working my way through these truths, and this Sunday I'm going to speak on this truth. And, you know, perhaps he taught through the life of Christ, or, or perhaps he went back to... To Genesis and talked on original sin and creation and and there he'd be able to open up the scripture and and say Let's read from Genesis 3 and and he would you know So he I, I don't imagine that that he uh, that he walked into church And rolled open the scroll and put his finger on it and went well, I'm gonna talk about that today I don't think he did. I don't think he was that kind of guy but at the same time that he I imagine he would have come to, to church prepared or he would have come to a Bible study prepared, or or when he went down to those places of prayer, he would have come there prepared. I also know, and we're going to be studying this as we go into chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this book, I also know that God was still giving his truth through the people of the church. And this is hard for us sedate Baptists to understand, but you know, when they're having a church service, maybe, you know, maybe uh, maybe Raul would be there playing the song and going away, and, and he'd stop, and somebody would say, I have a word from the Lord. And that's prophesying, because they would stand up. They would have a word from the Lord. It wouldn't be any any, looking for a kind word, any misguided mm, missives as I have been handed by people coming to the church with their word from the Lord, which is already stuff all written in the Bible, they would have a word from the Lord because God gave truth through prophets, and he gave some truth through female prophets. We have a record of Philip having, I believe it was for uh, Agabus, there was a, a man in the church who had four daughters, and they were all prophetesses. Okay, I understand that. God did that, and so people would say, I I have a word from the Lord, and I also think the issue of praying could have been connected with with the tongues, and again, the revelation of God's truth, but both of these things were spontaneous activities, and so the Apostle Paul was not envisioning a church where he sat down with the uh, elders and the worship team, and they planned the church service, and they said, well, at this point, sister so and so is gonna talk. I don't believe that's the, the, what's envisioned is they came to church, some of it was planned, some of it was spontaneous, we read about that in other parts of, of this book, and then people would stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord, somebody would stand up and speak in tongues and have a word, somebody would stand up and interpret it and have a word from the Lord, and it's in that environment in which God is saying, now listen, when a woman or a man stands up to do that, here is a qualification. Okay, again, now you're, part, some of you are thinking right now, Pastor Dave, we don't have any more prophesying because we have the Word of God, and we don't have people stand up spontaneously here, so why does this matter for us? Well, you just hang in there until we get down a little farther, and you'll find out how it matters to you. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> so that's the activity in question, Okay. Um, I I believe that's the environment we're talking about. Now, uh, what's the error which is possible? What's the error that is possible? Again, look at verse 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The word head is used in two ways in this Scripture. Uh, first of all, it's 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 used to talk about your physical head. That's where your hair is. That's the top. That's where a covering would be. It's also used in reference to a person's spiritual authority figure. And essentially, this passage, for the purpose of this instruction, he has laying out these three spiritual uh, authorities. And I didn't put God out here, and I, I should have. I, I apologize for that. But the wife has a head, which is her husband. The husband has a head, which is Christ. And so when we go back and read it, every man who prays or prophesies with his physical head covered dishonors his spiritual head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her head That is the error which is possible. The error, if you can understand this, the error involved the covering, but it really involved dishonoring the spiritual authority figure above you. The way you pray or prophesy in the church service would either honor your spiritual authority figure or dishonor him. So what is the path to honor? Well, the path to honor says men are to have their head uncovered, women are to have their head covered. Half of that we're down on, right? In fact, I'm, I'm so concerned to be uncovered, I've, I've had most of my hair removed. <laughs> you see, we don't have any problem with half of this instruction because we kind of go, of course. You know, um, And of course, this is, this is no doubt where the concept came from of men taking their hat off in church. And for that matter, it extended to the rest of going indoors. Okay. What we don't always understand is how this applied to us individually. Um, what's fascinating here is that God doesn't say what the cover is right there. He just says covered and then uncovered, and, and the word doesn't give, you, doesn't give you any help. But in verse 10, it says, for this reason, the woman ought to have, and it literally reads like this, the woman ought to have authority down. Now, why would I tell you that? I'd tell you that because that's part of what makes this passage hard to interpret, it doesn't say a symbol of authority. It doesn't say she should put a doily on her head. It doesn't say she should put a complete covering. It doesn't, it doesn't explicitly say that. And I think part of the reason God did that is because he wants us to focus in on this issue of authority. Somehow what's critical is when that woman would stand up to speak God's word, that there would be a visible way to say that woman is living under the authority of her husband. So we move on to the application of this truth to the woman. There's an application to the woman, there's an application to the man. Look at verse 6. For if the woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. The word shorn is the same word used of, of shearing sheep. So if you want to say, well, what kind of a cut are they talking about? Have you ever seen a picture of sheep being shorn? Okay, do they, do they give them a mullet? Do they give them kind of a hairdo or do they just cut it off? as close to the skin as they can, you know, without hurting the animal. That's what the word shorn there means. And then there is also the word in verse 5 used, which is shaved. And that means exactly what it says, to be shaved. So both of these words are used. If a Verse 6, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. In other words, let her hair be cut off. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her then be covered. Okay? Verse 6 seems to be saying that the covering is something other than hair. If she isn't going to be covered, then shave off all of her hair. And one of the keys comes in verse 6. If it is a shame for her to have her head shaved it would seem that this passage really hinges on the concept of hair length and shame. The only Old Testament reference we get that helps us is this, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, Think with me a minute for how you know that people dressed um, I could have put pictures up here about how people dressed in the Bible times uh, but we don't have any pictures, do we? We do know we do know from certain ancient you know artifacts and so on that people basically wore a robe type thing okay and then when men would go to battle or go to work they would gird up their clothing, which meant they would grab the the pieces and they would pull it up here and tie it all up together so their legs would be free to run, okay? So they're both wearing this big robe type thing, and to some extent, men wore a thing on their head like women did. So I'm really having a hard time saying, well, what's it mean for a woman to dress like a man and a man to dress like a woman? I, I don't get it. Okay, I'm struggling with that a little bit, but I do know this, if God wrote that, then what that meant was in the common culture, you could look at the way a person was dressed and go, oh, that's a man or that's a woman. There was something about the clothing that indicated that, that connection to your gender, Okay. Since I've been studying this this week, I've been, I was looking as I went around, and particularly I was looking at hair, and, and I never noticed how many women have long hair until I read this. You know, my wife has kind of moderate, I, I, middle of the road there, you know, whatever. You're going to have to grow it way down to be in conformance with this. You know. <laughs> but see, the Scripture doesn't even define here what long is. But it has something to do with hair length and shame, and it has something to do with the evidence of being under, the sub- under submission to your husband. Now, if we, if we do a little historical research into the society of Corinth in that day, we would find that rebellious women, including prostitutes, shaved their heads. In other words, they would have extremely short hair, um, and, I, and I understand in, in almost probably half of what I'm saying today, I understand I'm leaving myself open to criticism and the characterization, and, and I'll take it, okay? But I'm going to say one right now. Somehow, they had an image of what a decent woman looked like, and they had an image of what a rebellious woman looked like, Okay? And they said, if it's a shame for a woman to be this way, then just cut her hair all the way off completely. In other words, they had this, again, it's a terrible term, they had an idea of common decency. And so they would say, here is a woman who is living a good, God-fearing life. She gives evidence of following her husband's lead. Apparently... I would understand that a good God-fearing man would never let his wife look like a prostitute. Okay? And I think we're getting closer to the idea that Paul was trying to tell us here. In Paul's day, rebellious women, including prostitutes, shaved their heads. Paul warned his female readers that entering the church worship service with their heads uncovered, not having a covering of some sort, sent the same signal as if they had shaved their heads. In other words, here comes a woman. She's got long hair, but she won't cover it when she stands up to pray. And Paul says, you know what? That, the feeling that we get from that is just like if you were a prostitute with a shaved head. Now, is that a fair judgment? Uh, I'm not prepared to say so. I'm just trying to understand what God wrote in the word here. Another author put it this way. He is simply asking the Christian women in Corinth to wear, and and I think this is a good term, to wear the culturally relevant symbol of their submission, a veil or a head covering. If Paul was writing to Christian women today, he would not exhort them to wear head coverings since that symbol is no longer culturally relevant. It is another author said this it is a principle of women's subordin- it is the principle of women's subordination to men, not the pati- particular mark or symbol of subordination that Paul is teaching in this passage. The apostle is not laying down a universal pr- principle that Christian women should always worship with their heads covered. Now, I know that there are churches today that require women to wear some kind of head covering in church. I have taught with some Russian brothers and sisters down in Puyallup, and their women, well, all of the older women cover their head, not all of the younger women. Okay? There are churches around here where women always wear a head covering. A lot of them, it's something like a lace doily pinned to their head. Some of them will wear a scarf. The, the older Russian women will wear like a scarf. Uh, I'm certainly aware of churches that teach women must have long hair. I read uh, one of the books I bought to study this passage was a woman who was raised in the uh, United Pentecostal, or at least in her brand of United Pentecostal. They require that you never cut your hair at all, period. That even to trim the split ends off the bottom is, is wicked. Okay, This passage doesn't teach that. This passage doesn't teach that all women have to cover their head when they come to church. It does say that if a woman is going to partake of these particular activities, she has to demonstrate that she is in submission to her husband. She has to demonstrate that she is not asserting herself in some way that God does not want to happen. The key question we have to ask today in applying this scripture, I believe, is this. What kind of appearance in a woman would indicate rebellion against their God-given position of submission to their husbands? Now, that's a huge loaded statement because in our country we have women's fashion all over the board, women's hairstyles all over the board. I, I understand that and there isn't like one kind of accepted norm and one rebellious norm I get that but somehow in this very tightly guarded situation of certain things at church there was a way to to recognize this woman is in submission to her husband now I have to be brutally honest friends and I'll run the risk of some criticism, but this is one of the thoughts that I just could not escape as I prepared this. To say, if I ask the question, what kind of appearance on a woman looks like she is rebelling against her God-given position of, of being a woman and being in submission to her husband? That appearance is of those homosexual women who make themselves look like men. While I have not had extended discussions with any of them, I have to assume they are trying to become a man. And as I understand the scripture, that means they are rejecting their God-given position as a woman and would certainly reject any God-given position to be in submission to a man. Listen to God's commentary on our society For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the, here's the key, natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, and I'm going to come to the men in a minute. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not, here's the problem did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them up, he let go of them. The real problem in the rejection of gender and gender identification is a rejection of God's clear plain truth. And I think for our society that comes the closest to the spirit of what God is telling us here. There are a few societies in the world where a modest woman wears a veil. And I'm not just talking about Muslim societies. Okay, So there could be some societies where this might apply more directly, that she's indicating her her modesty and her submission to her husband by wearing that veil. Look at verse 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 11 does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, and a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for the covering. See, this scripture here, this part of the passage seems to say that for a woman to have normally long hair is God's intention, and that that is the indication that she is she is living in the relationship with her husband that she should in a relationship to God. And he appeals to nature and how there is a certain naturalness to this. Well, let's go on to the application to the man. Look at verse 7 to 9. For the man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Um, we struggle to understand the, what the problem was with the you know, what what did God want for the women to do here? What we don't understand is that for the men in that day, this may have been equally challenging. The Jewish men always wore a head covering when they went to pray, and they still wear it today. And so to tell them, take the cover off your head would have been just as hard as perhaps to tell these women to put a cover on their head. The pagans, the people who came out of the, the uh, uh, ungodly religions of the day, they, the men covered their hair when they went to worship, covered their head. And so there is an equally challenging instruction here, but God offers several reasons why the man is not to cover his head while praying or prophesying. And the first one is the original man was created directly by God. The second one, woman was created out of the man. And the third, woman was created to fulfill the need of man. Now, here's the simple understanding of this. Why, did, why do these things mean that the man is supposed to be in the lead position? Because God did them on purpose for that reason. God could have done things in any order that he chose. Um, you know, we, we would look at it and say, well, he had to create somebody first. What difference does it make whether it was the man or the woman? Well, humanly speaking, you're right, it doesn't matter. He could have created them both at the same time. He could have spoke them both into being, presumably as he did the animals, male and female. But he didn't do that. He created man, and then out of the man, he purposefully took a rib and created the woman, and he did so to bring the two of them together to meet the man's need. God did these creative acts to demonstrate that he intends for men to have a leadership position. And so the man must not be covered. And if I would judge by the whole theme of cultural manhood that this passage seems to be touching on, I would say the same thing about the man that I said about the woman. There is no room in God's economy For a man to come to church dressed like a woman, trying to be a woman, and to stand up and pray or prophesy. I'm not saying those people are unwelcome in church, just the opposite. Just the opposite. We need to reach out and love every single person, but that's not the same as saying every single person has equal access to the ministry of God, to doing the ministry. The man's head must be uncovered. To show that he is the head of the woman and the woman must be covered because she is not the head, she is the follower. Now let's apply this to where we're living today. I've called this the sharpened point in verse 10. For this reason a woman ought to have authority down her head. She ought to have the symbol of authority. There ought to be the evidence of authority on her head, and because of the angels. Um, It might be easy for us to say, well, we don't have any more prophecy, so there's no problem, and our solution to the other half of this is we just don't have women pray in our service. And so we don't need to worry about whether they got a covering on their head or not. That's that's the uh, cheapskate's way out. See, there's a bigger issue here. And verse 10 really hits the issue, I think. And the issue is living under God's authority. And I would just ask this question, okay? I'm not for men wearing their hats in church or anywhere else inside. It's not a, not a huge deal to me either way, So I'm not, but I'm not arguing for that. When I ask this question, does a man taking off his hat indicate that his heart is in submission to God? Does a man taking off his hat indicate he is in submission to God? No. Now, anything God tells us to do, we ought to do. But the real question, and the question we need to ask is, am I in submission to God? Does a woman wearing long hair, if that is what God intends for the covering, or wearing some Some veil on her head when she stands up to pray or prophesy. Does that indicate that her heart is submitted to God and the man she has placed, he has placed in her life? No. No. At best, the covering or the uncovering can be a symbol, but the question is, where is your heart? And we see here in Psalm 51 that God is always after our heart. For you do not desire sacrifice, just the physical activity or else I would give it to you. You do not delight in just the physical activity of the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, and this is in the Old Testament when they were supposed to be bringing these burnt offerings and sacrifices. The real sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now he was not saying a broken heart like, oh, I've lost my loved one and I'm just really sad. He's talking about a broken heart over sin. The person would bring their, their sin offering and, and, and it would not just be, well, God said I'm supposed to bring a, an offering, so here it is. It was like, God said I'm supposed to do this and I, I'm so thankful that he will receive this and cover my sin with this and I'm so thankful for the forgiving work of God and, and I know I'm a sinner and, and God, uh, my intention is to go and live for you. That's what David was writing in Psalm 51. This is the psalm where he confesses his sin to Bathsheba, and he talks about how terrible of a sinner he was. God wants us to live and minister in humble submission to him and all of his commandments. And what verse 10 tells us, he just throws this in at the end, and you think, oh, Paul, why don't you explain it to us? He says, our submission to God is doing something for the angels. It is teaching the angels. Look at verse 10. The the woman ought to have a symbol of authority because of the angels. One author put it this way, and I I like his summary. It, It was the sin of pride or insubordination that caused Satan and his angels to sin. Satan wanted to be like his authoritative head, God. Thus the good angels can learn about the acceptance of authority through the voluntary subordination of women to their husbands. If the women try to be like their authoritative head, their husband, then a valuable lesson will not be able to be taught. We don't don't talk about angels much, but God says they're learning some things from us they're learning about salvation, and here they're learning about submission, and that is God's desire that when we come together, the way that we act shows them that we live in submission to God, even when that means it's a woman showing she is in submission to her husband. Now, I'm I'm, going to wrap this up here in just a minute, and some of you are going to go, You didn't tell us exactly what we're supposed to do. And you're right. Because I scoured every reference I could find to find somebody who would tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. Now, some people will say, well, it's clear and plain. A woman's supposed to put a cover on her head if she's going to pray or prophesy in the public meeting. And I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. I would argue with the idea that women have to cover their hair all the time, and I would argue with the fact that women have to never cut their hair, and that it has to be over a certain amount long to be considered long. See, I think what we can do with a passage like this is eliminate out all of the things that the passage doesn't teach. It doesn't say you can't cut your hair. It doesn't say you have to grow it long and then wrap it up in a bun. It's not wicked to wrap it up in a bum, but there's nothing especially spiritual about it either. It doesn't say you have to cover yourself all the time when you're in church. But what it does say should always be true of us is that we willingly live under the authority God has placed us in. That I know for certain. And when we come to verse 16, we have one final word, as I've called it. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And what he says is, look, I've told you the normal understanding of God's truth, and so if you want to contend with the dark doctrine, go ahead and contend, but nobody in the other churches will support you. They all have a a similar understanding. My challenge to you with this final point is this. You can spend your time contending with the truth, or you can spend your time meditating on it, praying about it, reading it, and and genuinely saying, God, I want to I know what this means for me. And if frankly, if you come to the conviction that you ought to wear something on your head to church, Lord bless you, I'm not going to have a problem with that. Much more so, I'm concerned about this issue of authority and submission and of us coming to a conclusion of saying, God, I need to really... I need to ask myself the question, can people see that I'm living under my head? That I can, you know, if I'm a man, that Christ is my head. If I'm a woman, that my husband is my head. Uh, You know, can can people, do people perceive that about me? Because I want that to be true whether I'm in church or out of church. One of my neighbors recently told me she's been on chemotherapy for 36 months. Medicine hurts sometimes. I realize that some aspects of this passage are hard pills to swallow. Some of them are just strange pills. But God calls us to obey through faith, not because we have a perfect understanding of everything that he says. Heavenly Father, help us to understand those parts that are clear. Help us to live those parts that are clear. And Father, help us, to, help us to tuck this passage away and chew on it and meditate on it and to have a growing appreciation and understanding of it. Father, I pray that, that we would all here in this church be folks who live under the, submission, under the authority you've put in our life. And I pray that that would show.